Hello, and welcome to Tiny Insect. Episode 1.6, A Portrait of God's Son as a Young Man. The historical record we possess about the life of Hong Shi Quan and the Taiping in general is much richer than what has survived from so many other historical figures who found themselves on the losing side of the conflict. We have huge numbers of documents written and published by the Taiping government, many authored by Hong himself. We have first-hand accounts from European missionaries and travelers who met Hong and other Taiping leaders. Qing officials produced a large number of intelligence reports and documents, including the so-called Confessions, by captured Taiping leaders. Zheng Guofan kept a detailed and personal journal describing events. The historian Zhen Yuwen traveled to Hong Shiquan's home village and met elders who knew Hong as a young man. But we still don't know that much direct information about Hong Shiquan's early life. So, in this episode, I'm going to talk about what we do know. We're also going to learn about the distinctive region of China in which Hong grew up, the ethnic minority of which he was part, and the institution that structured the first quarter century of his life. The region of China where Han Quan grew up learned he was the younger brother of Jesus Christ and declared his heavenly kingdom was known as Lingnan. We're going to spend the next dozen episodes in Lingnan, so I think it's time you were introduced. Lingnan literally means south of the Nanling Mountains, a mountain range that runs roughly east to west for nearly 400 miles, separating the Yangtze River Basin to the north and the Pearl River Basin to the south. The Nanling Mountains are more Appalachian or Ural Mountains and less Himalayan or Andes, with average heights around 3,000 feet and peaks at 6,000 feet above sea level. It's an important barrier, but not an insurmountable obstacle. Lingnan is largely made up of two Chinese provinces, Guangdong and Guangxi. Guangdong occupies the eastern half of the region and Guangxi the west. Lingnan also includes small parts of a few other provinces, as well as part of northern Vietnam. While mountains define the north of Lingnan, the south is defined by the South China Sea, with the coastline running either west to east or southwest to northeast. The South China Sea was, as it is today, an incredibly important trading thoroughfare, with some of the world's busiest sea lanes. The climate of Lingnan is mostly subtropical, with plenty of rainfall and virtually no freezing temperatures. The Tropic of Cancer runs through Lingnan, so it's pretty far south. Think North Africa, or just south of Miami. For comparison, Beijing is at about the same latitude as New York City. The climate is dominated by the monsoon, which creates a fairly predictable series of wet and dry seasons. Lingnan was home to many diverse peoples. A large number, probably the majority, spoke Yue languages. Yue speakers are often called Cantonese, as in, they are the people of Canton, the old English name for the city of Guangzhou. Another group of people were the Miao, a collective term for a diverse group of peoples. Even though it wasn't a term of self-identification, I'm going to use it sometimes because it's how the sources I have refer to these people, and I can't tell which particular groups they're referring to. One constituent group of Miao you may have heard of are the Hmong, who have many communities in the United States today. Other groups in Lingnan included Li, Zhuang, and Tanka. There were also Hakka, who we'll learn about in much greater detail later in the episode because they're going to be really important to our story. 
Lignan is a fairly hilly and rugged region, with few alluvial plains. Sweet potatoes and peanuts were adopted quickly in Lignan, because they could be grown in the poorer soils or on hills, leaving more high-quality farmland for crops like sugarcane, mulberry to feed silkworms, and rice. By the beginning of the 18th century, about 7% of Lignan's land was cultivated. By the beginning of the Taiping Heavenly Kingdom 150 years later, that had doubled to 13%, mostly by bringing hilly land into cultivation. There were two popular overland routes that linked Lingnan to the Yangtze Basin to its north. The first was the Myling Pass in northern Guangdong. During the 8th century, the Tang Dynasty made this passage much more accessible by chiseling a road 3 meters wide and 20 meters long through solid rock. This pass was popular with porters moving goods between boats on the Gang River in Jiangxi, a Yangtze tributary, and the North River in Lingnan that flowed down to the Pearl River. The second popular route was the Ling Canal in Guangxi Province, which linked Yangtze and Pearl River tributaries. This canal made it possible for boats to travel from Guangzhou all the way to Beijing via rivers and the Grand Canal. Then as now, Guangzhou and its neighboring cities were the most important urban center on the South China Sea and in Lingnan. The capital of Guangdong province, Guangzhou, sits at the mouth of the Pearl River, the ultimate destination for the rivers of the Lingnan. The geography of Guangzhou has significantly changed over the past millennium. During the Hong and Tang dynasties, Guangzhou sat where the Pearl River met a wide, shallow bay. By the 19th century, however, large parts of the bay had silted up, and the old walled city lay inland from the ocean and the main port. Guangzhou was a bustling city, oriented toward water transport, with boats of all types crowding the water. In addition to standard ferries and bulk transport vessels, brothels, homes, barbers, theaters, opium dens, and more floated on the river and ocean. Guangzhou was also home to some 47,000 Manchu banner soldiers, who lived in a gated and walled-off section of the city with their families. It was by far the largest concentration of Manchu bannermen in the south of China. You may know Guangzhou by a different name, Canton. The name Canton comes from an early Portuguese name for the city, a butchering of the name of the province in which Guangzhou sits, Guangdong province. Many histories written today still call it Canton, but as far as I can tell, there's no good reason for keeping the name. Perhaps scholars, at least the English-speaking scholars that I read, just want to avoid confusion because we've been calling it Canton for ages. But for me, this is just an example of sunk cost bias. We've already invested so much in this name, we couldn't possibly change it now. We wouldn't want to confuse our poor, poor readers. Anyways, I don't know the reason why. All I know is that I'm going to call it Guangzhou, as I have in earlier episodes. That's the city's name, and I'm sorry if early writers called it something else and couldn't be bothered to admit their mistake and fix it when they eventually learned the city's actual name. Though Guangzhou was the most important city at the mouth of the Pearl River, it wasn't alone. Guangzhou lay at the northern end of a wide bay ringed by cities and towns. The entire delta region was densely populated. 
Guangzhou itself had a population of around 800,000 in the early 19th century, making it one of the largest cities in the world. One neighboring city, Foshan, was a manufacturing powerhouse. Macau was leased by the Portuguese and housed communities of European traders. And, after 1839, Hong Kong exploded from a rocky, barely habitated island into a thriving metropolis. By the early 19th century, the economy of Lingnan was almost entirely commercialized. By that, I mean economic activity was oriented around commerce, specialized production, markets, and profit-seeking. Although deeply agricultural, Lingnan's economy wasn't based on homesteads producing for their own needs, maybe trading at a local market. The farms of Lingnan were highly specialized in growing silk, tea, sugarcane, rice, origins, oranges, and other crops destined to be exported to other regions of China or abroad. The city of Foshan, right next to Guangzhou, was a center for the iron industry and ceramics production. Raw cotton was imported and turned into cloth in large workshops, and then re-exported. Lingnan saw intense population growth in the 1700s and was one of the most land-starved regions of the empire by 1800, at least as bad as the central western provinces where the white lotus rose up last episode. To make matters even more difficult for some, up to 50% of the prime arable land was used for a mulberry tree and fish pond system that was designed to produce silk for export instead of food, meaning even the richest farming regions in Lingnan were net food importers. The richest citizen on earth during the first half of the 19th century, richer than any of his contemporary western capitalists, made his fortune in Lingnan. His name was Wu Bingjiang, and we'll get to know him better in future episodes. Regional trade with places like Siam, Vietnam, Sumatra, Java, the Malay Peninsula, the Philippines, and Borneo flourished. Guangzhou was also the destination for traders from Britain, France, and the United States. Beginning in 1757, the Qing government designated Guangzhou as the only destination these foreign traders could visit. Customs revenue collected in Guangzhou province in the early 1800s totaled two-thirds of all customs revenue collected in the entire empire. Chinese merchants imported many raw ingredients, such as cotton and wood, for their domestic industry, and also rice to feed factory workers. Now that you know a little bit about Lingnan, it's finally time to meet the founder and leader of the Taiping, Hong Shiquan. Like all of us, Hong's life was shaped by the place and society into which he was born and raised. Hong Shiquan was born on January 1st, 1814. He grew up in a village in Hua County, about 30 miles north of Guangzhou in Guangdong province. He was the third and youngest son, with two older brothers and an older sister. Another sister was born a few years after him. His mother died, however, when he was young and his father remarried, although this new marriage produced no children. Hong's given name was Hong Huoxiao. Huoxiao translates to brilliant fire. He'll take on the new name Shiquan later on in the story, for reasons I'll explain when we get there. Since he was known as Hong Shiquan for most of the story I want to tell, I'm going to use that name starting now for simplicity's sake. Hua County, where Hong was born and raised, was a relatively new county, 
created out of a rugged hill region that had been ravaged during the civil wars associated with the Manchu conquests of the mid-17th century. Hong's ancestors migrated to Hua County around that time. Upon being created, the county was granted its own magistrate and staff, tax collectors, a county school, orphanage, and granary. The Hong family farm was typical for the village, not particularly large or small. They kept one or two buffalo, pigs, and chickens. Their primary crop focus was growing vegetables for sale at the local market, but they also grew some rice. The Hongs lived in a village of approximately 400 people, three quarters of whom were members of the Hong clan. Hong's father was a respected member of this community. One reason we know so much about Hong and his family is that his cousin, Hong Rangan, was friends with a missionary named Theodore Hamburg, who used him as a source and wrote several books about Hong and the Taiping Civil War while it was happening. It's a great resource and we're lucky to have it. The extended paternal family was very important in 19th century China, as it had been for centuries. Here's Theodore Hamburg describing Chinese family structures. Quote, in China, where the security of a family depends on the influence and number of its members, all descendants from one ancestral head consider themselves nearly related and as belonging to one family, mutually bound to protect and assist each other. End quote. Extended family lineages played an especially important role in Lingnan relative to other parts of China, although they were pretty much important everywhere. The Hongs traced their family lineage back 800 years to the Song Dynasty of the 11th century, when one of their ancestors was the Minister of State, and some 80 relatives worked throughout the Song bureaucracy. It was a prestigious lineage of which the Hongs were proud. Hong Shiquan was five or six when he started to attend school. He memorized the classics that formed the backbone of Qing education within five or six years. He was very precocious and impressed all the teachers he encountered. The entire village and extended Hong clan poured their limited resources into the young boy. After his father could no longer afford to pay teachers, several volunteered their time, traveling to Hong's village to instruct the young boy. When not studying, Hong helped his family in the fields and guided the family buffalo into the mountains to forage. According to relatives who knew him, Hong liked to play games where he made up the rules and beat up any of the other boys who disobeyed. It sounds like he was a serious and overbearing child. Hong began to participate in the exam system in 1827 at the age of 13. They saw so much potential in Hong Shiquan, they poured their resources into educating him in the hopes of reviving the family fortune. If everything went well, who knew? Maybe the Hongs would rise again to the heights of political influence if Hong Shiquan earned a prestigious degree and landed a Peng job in the Qing bureaucracy. As he grew older, the Hong clan decided that manual labor was a waste of Hong Shiquan's talent and potential. So they opened a school for him to teach at and paid him enough to support himself while he taught their sons and prepared for the imperial exams himself. When Hong was young, his parents arranged a marriage for him but his bride-to-be died young. Instead, he married a woman named Lai. Unfortunately, we know nothing about Lai's life until she married Hong Shiquan. Unlike the majority of the population in and around Guangzhou, who spoke different Yue languages, the Hong clan 
was part of a minority group called Hakka, as was everyone else in Hanjikwan's village. The term Hakka literally means guest peoples and began as a pejorative term like gypsy or oki. But like many names in history that begin as pejoratives, it's the name that's stuck and one that's used by Hakkas and non-Hakkas alike, so I'm going to continue using it. Hong's Hakka identity was critical to his upbringing and the rise of the Taiping. Professor Mary Erbao writes that although the Hakka are ethnically Han Chinese, quote, no other Han subgroup approaches the Hakka combination of diaspora, stigma, pride, and silent solidarity against outsiders, end quote. This is one of the reasons I have tried to shy away from drawing sharp distinctions between Han versus non-Han Chinese in past episodes, or even to define what Han even means now or in the past. The differences between different groups of Han Chinese were sometimes as sharp or sharper than the differences between quote-unquote Han and non-Han. Definitions of what made one Han have shifted over time. Where you were from, your gender, which languages you spoke, your wealth, and your education were all more determinative in one's life than whether you were Han or not. Even the differences between Manchu and non-Manchu were relative, especially before the Taiping Civil War. A Manchu, who was a high-ranking court official, probably had more in common with an educated Yue speaker from Guangzhou than with an illiterate Manchu soldier born, raised, and stationed in Xinjiang province. The Hakka were defined by their cohesiveness in spite of their geographic dispersion. Before the 19th century, Hakka identity was shaped by three large migrations. The first occurred when refugees fled Henan and Shandong provinces during the chaos of the 10th century and settled in the highlands of northern Fujiang and southern Jiangxi province. These were the first Hakka, and Hong's family traced their ancestry back to one of them. In turn, some of these first Hakka and their descendants became refugees during the Mongol invasions of the 13th century and moved into the highlands of northern Guangdong province. A third wave followed the early Manchu invasion of southern China. The Manchu forced locals off of their lands along the coast of southern China in an effort to deprive Taiwanese-based rebels a base of operation or supply on the mainland. Upwards of 90% of the original coastal inhabitants never returned, so the families of Hakka moved in. The Hongs arrived in Hua County in the 1680s as part of this third major Hakka migration. These migrations scattered Hakka populations across the empire. Before 1850, the Hakka made up only about 3% of China's population. Traditional Chinese culture puts a heavy emphasis on the importance of being rooted in a place. The Hakka, though, were rootless by definition, even if in practice some families lived in the same place for hundreds of years. Their culture was adapted to an insecure life on the move. For example, the Hakka dug up the bones of their ancestors and carried them to their new home as they moved. Their ancestor worship rituals were also much simpler. They kept a single tablet instead of an altar full of them. Hakka tended to marry other Hakkas and stay socially cohesive. The Hakka took great pride in their distinct Hakka language. When outside women married a Hakka husband, 
they were expected to learn the Hakka language and teach it to their children. The ability to speak Hakka was more important to one's identity than being a member of any particular clan. Hakkas who refused to speak the language would be ostracized and barred from the family ancestral sites. Hakka was a mutually intelligible language across the entire diaspora, indicating frequent travel and exchange between groups in different provinces, not unlike the role Yiddish played in the European Jewish diaspora. By contrast, many dialects of Yue, Mandarin, and other Chinese languages at the time were not mutually intelligible, despite the fact they were spoken in villages in closer physical proximity. Hakka women led quite different lives than other Chinese women. Perhaps their most distinguishing feature on a day-to-day basis was that they did not practice footbinding. The Chinese nationalist leader Sun Yat-sen, who modeled himself in some ways after Hong Shi-kwan, once suggested to his mother that they unbind his sister's feet. He recounted later his mother's response, quote, Would you have your sister as a Hakka woman or as a Chinese woman? Would you have her as a stranger or as one of us? End quote. Qing culture idealized subservience. The idea of wives committing suicide after their husbands had died was applauded. Women who cut off their nose or ears to prevent remarriage were virtuous. The ideal female was cloistered in the home, loyal to her husband, and played no role in political life. In Hakka society, Women worked the fields and participated in at least some aspects of public life. They worked in the field alongside men and in construction and other forms of manual labor, something very rare in most of Chinese society. Because agriculture in their hill communities was more seasonal and less labor-intensive, Hakka men often migrated and worked as day laborers. So, women ran the household, tended the crops, and managed the family's money while they were gone. Hakka tradition also encouraged monogamy and discouraged concubinage and prostitution, stances that we'll see the Taiping take up in principle, if not always in practice. The relative freedom between the sexes can be seen in the Hakka tradition of women's love songs, as well as in bridal and funeral laments. Hong Shi Quan's Hakka identity was critical in his life and determining his place in society as he grew up. It's also impossible to understand his earliest and most dedicated followers, the Society of God Worshippers, without understanding the Hakka and their place in Chinese society. The hopes and dreams of becoming a Confucian scholar and lifting the social status of his entire clan consumed the first three decades of Han Quan's life. The Chinese imperial exam system gave young men of modest birth a pathway to improve their social standing. For some, such as the obstinate anti-Taiping leader, Zheng Guofan, the system really did provide a pathway for a poor peasant boy to become an elite and respected leader. But for millions of others, it left only broken dreams, mountains of debt, and bitter disappointment. The first imperial exam system was instituted during the Sui dynasty in 605 CE. The new imperial government wanted a system to limit the power of the elite local families who had entrenched themselves throughout the territories of the former Han dynasty since its collapse. It took a few centuries and a couple of dynasties for the system to reach a place of maturity in the Song dynasty in the early 10th century. 
The exam system shaped the nature of Chinese dynastic states for the next thousand years, before it was finally abolished in 1905, just seven years before the final dissolution of the imperial system itself. The imperial exams allowed the emperor to recruit worthy administrators from across the empire. The men who passed and earned degrees owed their power to the emperor himself and could only advance their own interests by advancing his. That was the theory, at least. As with standardized tests today, the exams never fully eliminated the influence of the rich and powerful, whose children always had a leg up. But it infused the Chinese state with a bureaucratic class of at least some intelligence and ambition. Those that made it to the top owed their authority to their prowess at the eight-legged essay and the emperor who oversaw their exam, not family wealth. Although open to a large majority of the male population, there were some quote-unquote base family origins that were excluded from the system. For example, if your grandmother ran a brothel, you couldn't take the exam, but being a poor farmer was fine. Women, of course, weren't allowed to take the exam at all. That would definitely have run against Confucian views of order and right behavior. Attaining a degree and an official office could be extremely lucrative. Qing officials were the law in their land and could become wealthy through their salary, special fees, and, if they were so inclined, by accepting bribes and graft. A successful exam student could easily earn back the money his family and lineage spent on his education, buy up land and other property, and fund the education of subsequent generations of his clan. Elite families found it necessary to produce at least one elite degree holder every few generations in order to maintain their social status. The examination system helped build social stability and spread Confucian ideals and values throughout the empire. It also helped increase the number of citizens with working literacy by giving parents a good financial reason to send their bright sons to school. In some Hakka communities, for example, literacy rates in the 19th century were as high as 80%. A son who could move beyond his peasant origins and win a position within the state bureaucracy could bring prestige to his entire lineage and lift them into a higher social class. Exam students immersed themselves in Confucian philosophy and rhetoric. Preparation began when the boy was four or five. The boy focused on memorization, first of the characters and then of short works. He would then memorize, character for character, the four books. Those are The Analects, Doctrine of the Mean, Great Learning, and Mencius and the five classics, which are of poetry, documents and changes, the record of rites, and the spring and autumn annals. Those nine works totaled more than a half million characters. These books were also written in classical Chinese, which was very different from the languages spoken by the students. It would be like a Polish child learning to read, memorize, and discuss Cicero in classic Latin. It helped tremendously if a student had access to a good teacher. It doesn't appear that Han Chi Quan had the access to this kind of training. We know he had teachers off and on, but it doesn't appear that they were of high caliber, which in the context meant men who had themselves passed the exams. There were several preliminary exams and three degree exams. 
an aspiring magistrate could sit for his first exam, which is the county-level exam, beginning when he was 12 or 13. Upon passing, he moved on to the prefecture-level exam. Passing that, he then traveled to the provincial capital to sit for the first degree exam. Further exams at the provincial level were conducted and a select group were awarded a second level of degree. These students were then permitted to sit for the metropolitan exam, which was held at a special metropolitan compound in Beijing. Men who passed this exam earned the coveted Jinshu degree, which qualified them for high-level appointments. Jinshu degree holders could also sit for a palace exam, which was conducted by the emperor himself. The palace exams were written in a particular style that helped establish the power relationship between the emperor and his future top magistrates, and established a master-disciple relationship important to Confucian ideology. Upon passing the palace exam, you were then admitted to the pinnacle of the exam system, the Hanlin Academy. So what was it like to take these exams? The highest level that Han Shi Quan made it was the first provincial level exam held in Guangzhou. So let's use that as our example. Exam length was measured not in hours, but in days. These weren't the SATs, but more like college finals from hell. The exam was held in a purpose-built permanent examination hall. The examination hall in Guangzhou was basically an open-air courtyard with thousands of individual cells, just large enough for a man to sit. Each cell was kind of like a tiny tin roof shed, lined up in rows hundreds long. A typical exam began in the middle of the night with a cannon blast, signaling to the candidates that it was time to wake up and prepare. An hour later, a second blast rang out, and the candidates walked to the examination hall. When students arrived, they were searched for crib sheets and other contraband. Each candidate carried a basket with everything he would need for the examination, ink, brushes, food, and water to last three days. Each cell contained three boards, arranged so that one could function as a bench, another a desk, and a third a shelf. And that was it. The student's cell would be their home for the next three long days and nights. According to Thomas Taylor Meadows, a British writer and traveler who is a contemporary of Hong Shiquan, it was not uncommon for exam students to die of, quote, mental and physical exhaustion and over-anxiety, end quote, when shut up in the examination hall. A presiding magistrate sat at the head of the examination hall. He announced the first question, which was written out on a large sheet of paper, and that was then carried around the hall so everyone could read it. The question usually included a quote from one of the classics. The candidate would then finish the quote, character for character, and write an essay about what this quote could teach us about the assigned topic, usually a contemporary issue of importance to the empire. Further questions followed a similar template. At least one of the questions over the three days required candidates to write a poem. After each answer was completed, papers were collected, graded, and the grades were posted in the hall. Writing was expected to follow a formalistic style so that grading could be more fair and objective. Think of the five-paragraph essay you may have learned in school. Attempts at cheating were common, 
including everything from sneaking in curb sheets to bribing officials. To prevent graders from recognizing the calligraphy of any particular student who might have slipped them some silver, exams were copied by a scribe prior to grading. Millions of men took these exams every year, and the rate of passing was very, very low. Something like one or two of every hundred test takers passed the initial county exam and prefecture level exams. This is a bar that Han Shikuan actually passed. Just one in 20 of those, however, who sat for the provincial exams passed and were allowed to sit for their first degree exam. For every hundred who sat for their first degree exam, only one or two of those passed to the final metropolitan test to earn his Jinshur degree. Grading was on a curve, so passing wasn't a matter of achieving a minimal score. You had to beat your peers. This was highly, highly competitive, and there are only a limited number of slots allowed for each exam. By the 1830s, when Han Shikuan was taking his exams, the pass rates were actually probably lower than this. Of the 2 million students who took the county-level exams every year, only about 20 that's 20 out of 2 million, passed the highest level exam and were admitted to the Hanlin Academy. On top of that, ethnic Manchu received special dispensations that made it easier for them to advance above and beyond the non-Manchu citizens of the empire. Talent alone couldn't overcome those kind of odds. This is much harder than getting into Harvard or Stanford, and there are no safe schools. Millions of men tried over and over and over again to pass the exams, with constant pressure from their family, clan, and village, who in many cases had pooled money and invested heavily in their success. It was an arms race. Others borrowed heavily and found their prospects ruined when they could only get jobs as secretaries or tutors. As the population of China exploded during the 18th and 19th century, the number of government jobs did not even keep pace with the number of students who did manage to earn degrees. This was in large part because the tax base was not keeping up with population growth. Emperor Kangxi's decision back in the early 1700s to impose a moratorium on land tax increases, which was dutifully followed by his successors, hobbled the Qing government. Even if you did manage to earn a degree, you still might have to wait a decade or two for a government position to open up. Very few candidates managed to earn degrees, but their number still outstripped the number of posts available. Most people didn't want to wait that long, and the path to receiving an appointment just became another part of public life that was rife with corruption. After going through the hell of examinations, many didn't want to wait for a post and paid huge bribes to purchase an appointment to be a magistrate of some county or whatever, and even pay additional bribes just to hold their positions from year to year. But since bureaucratic salaries were not that high, they were under pressure to demand bribes from their constituents, or their own underlings to pay back their debts. So, you want me to hear this lawsuit against your neighbor before the new year? You better pay up. Want a job as my secretary secretary? That'll be ten tile of silver, please. Another favorite tactic was to claim that you have a hundred militiamen that need pay, food, and equipment, and then withhold those tax payments from Beijing to cover the expense. But then you only hire 15 guys and keep the rest for yourself. 
that worked for a while, but became a big problem when you actually needed the 100 militiamen to fight bandits or a cell of Taiping rebels. By the first decade of the 1800s, most entry-level officials were in debt, and some could only afford one meal a day on their salary. They could not afford to pay their rent or feed their horses without the corruption. This system didn't exactly ingratiate the average Chinese farmer to his local government officials. As we saw with groups like the White Lotus, it often led to rebellion against state authority. Although the rebellions of the late 18th century were eventually defeated, the core problems that caused them were not solved. As we'll see, not all officials were corrupt. In fact, some men made their reputations for their incorruptibility in the face of such pressures. But the corruption was bad enough to push many to question the legitimacy of the entire empire. By 1840, the number of educated, frustrated young men with no prospects and a lot of shame was at an all-time high, and the problems for the empire were about to get a whole lot worse. Obviously, the exam system wasn't perfect. The ability to memorize old divination manuals probably isn't the best way to find and train a person to manage complex irrigation networks or run a state justice system. This isn't a new observation. Many people at the time recognized this and wrote about it. But the exam system was still much better than what most other states at the time practiced. Contemporary European philosophers, such as Voltaire, praised the Chinese system as free of influence from the hereditary nobility or the Catholic Church. Montesquieu admired how China's scholar officials were steeped in Confucian values from an early age. Compared to the Ancien Regime, the exam system under the Qing was positively enlightened. By the beginning of the 1800s, the British East India Company began to implement their own exams to select men for service. These exams were directly inspired by what their agents had witnessed in Guangzhou. The East India Company exams, in turn, established the foundation for what would become the British government's civil service exams put into practice in the middle of the 1800s. Next episode, Hong Shiquan is going to sit for the exams in Guangzhou for the third time. And for the third time, he's going to fail. But unlike the first two failures, this one will change something, break something in him. It will send him to a wondrous place and down a path that will change the course of his life forever. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, please leave a five-star rating and review. Ratings and reviews will help other listeners find the show. If you have any feedback for the show, questions or comments, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at TinyInsectPod. 